Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's great conversation is with novelist Heather Morris. Heather's debut novel, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, has caused a sensation invoking an incredibly human love story out of one of humanity's darkest chapters. I'm Andrew Popel, and every week I explore books, writing, and literary culture, broadcasting Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. Great Conversations is a way to enlarge that discussion. It's a weekly podcast sharing the stories and issues that make our world tick, getting behind the scenes and talking to the creators of the books that you love. This week's podcast feels extremely timely. As we hear neo-Nazis occupying space in the national discourse and horrific language evoking the Holocaust uttered in the National Senate, we have to ask ourselves what it means to remember and to honour the past. The Tattooist of Auschwitz transports the reader through one man's experience of the horror of Auschwitz-Birkenau and his strength to love and survive. In 1942, Lale Sokolov was on the first transport from Slovakia to Auschwitz-Birkenau, the most notorious of the Nazi death camps. In the position of Tatovira, Lale is able to use his relative privilege to smuggle food to starving prisoners and provide some modicum of solace to their lives. And when he meets Gita, he finds his own life transformed and vows to survive and live a life with the woman that he loves. I'm joined on the line from Melbourne by Heather Morris. Heather is the author of The Tattooist of Auschwitz. The, this book has done incredibly well on an incredibly difficult topic. I have enjoyed reading it so much, but also have to admit how much it's affected me. And... Um, Heather, we're going to be talking about this ahead of your appearance at the Sydney Jewish Writers' Festival. Thanks so much for joining me on the line. Oh, thank you for having me. It's a delight to be talking to you. Now, just to just to give the listeners some background, the Tattooist of Auschwitz presents the story of Lale Sokolov. In 1942, he was on the first transport from Slovakia to Auschwitz-Birkenau, the most notorious of the Nazi death camps. Gaining the position of Tatovira, or tattooist, uh, Lali is able to use his relative privilege to smuggle food to starving prisoners and provide some modicum of solace in their lives. He also meets Gita and finds his own life transformed and vows to survive and live a life with the woman that he loves. Um, I, look, I mean, I guess the one thing we have to say, Heather, is this, this book, your novel, is no more or less extraordinary for the fact that it was based on interviews that you conducted with Ludwig Lale Sokolov over years telling his story of survival. Um, Lale died in 2006, and his story has, has become a, a triumph for so many readers and an, an ability to really get into a space that I don't think any person that wasn't there will ever ever really have that experience. Um, I, I thought about as we were as I was preparing to chat to you, there's really no point in ignoring the fact that our conversation today is taking place amidst the context of a really heavily racist public discourse in Australia, and yep. in fact the evocation of Nazi policy in no less than the Australian Senate uh, by new phrase by new Senator Fraser Anning. And uh, can we start? I'd love to hear what you make of this discussion, this sort of broader public discussion, in the light of your work on the Tattooist of Auschwitz. Absolutely. Can I pick you up on one thing? Yeah, of course. You said I interviewed Lully. Mm. I never interviewed Lully. Mm. I sat and listened to Lully. I never took recording material with me, not even a pen and paper. That, fasc um, that fascinates so it, me. It's just a difference in terms of my approach and, and how it worked with being able to get him to trust me, mm. to tell his story. So, not being picky, but... 
No, no. Um, yeah, it, it, yeah, for months and months. I sat and listened and we talked. I'm fascinated in my work here at 2SER, but also in uh, research work that I've done at university. There are many ways to listen and tell a story. An interview is this sort of blanket term that, that covers really direct asking of questions and other ways of evoking stories. Did, mm. you, did you have any framework or was it simply that you, you would sit opposite him and, and he would lead you? Pretty much, I sat with him and he talked and I listened and then I raced home and tried to record what I had heard. Mm. But there was no point in ever trying to interrupt him. I mean, he was an 87, 88-year-old man. Mm. To interrupt him and say, oh, can you clarify something? It, it was never going to work. Mm. He needed to just talk. I needed to listen and then come back to him at some other point and just say, well, last time you mentioned so-and-so, can you tell me some more about it? Mm. But no, no questions and answers, no interruptions. It uh, it wasn't conducive to a man of his age who was grief-stricken, who wanted to get it out, get it out quick, get the story told. He wanted to go and join Gita. And when I first met him, that was uh, where we were coming from. Mm. And the circumstances that he came to be telling the story to you and also to you and not to anyone else over his very long life, he... he w- as I said, he's he's passed away 12 years ago, hasn't lived to see what is currently happening in Australia, which has, has shocked so many people and then also yeah. not shocked others. Can I come back to my original question? What, what do you make of this discussion in the light of, of the work that you've done, the story that you've recorded and brought to us? Well, in terms of the statement that's been made, appalled, disgusted, horrified. I mean, how dare you? Uh, in terms of... The different responses, you know, it's both gratifying and, again, upsetting that there are still people that want to, in some ways, say, he's allowed to say that, let him say it, Um, no need for an apology. Hey, listen, mate, there is. You don't get to use that language. And it's not about freedom of speech. It's about common decency. And um, it's, it's really encouraging. And just this morning, I was listening on the radio coming in, that tomorrow night at a football game, an AFL game here in Melbourne, or actually it might even be tonight, that two players from the two different teams are going to be tossing the coin in the middle of the MCG, both of Muslim background, as a stand against what's been going on this week. And I think that's wonderful. The freedom of speech um, discussion is always very interesting because um, I'm confused always because he's already said it. Nobody's Im- impinged on his ability to say something. Um, no, just, just think before you're mm, opening your mouth. Oh, exactly. Uh, and what we now are having is is a robust discussion around the context. And one of the things that was actually brought up by, um, by this man, this senator's um, political leader is that, well, he's not gone to university. He didn't understand the context and the history of that comment. The Tattooist of Auschwitz presents part of that history, but what... Maybe I should send him a copy of the book. Definitely. I think you should send him a copy of the book. I think, um, I think so, so many people should be educated broadly around what happened and the broader context and how that informs us now, but... Um, yeah, what what were you what were you looking for when you embarked on this journey with Lale? For Lale, his story first and foremost was about the love he had for Gita, mm-hmm. and that's why he wanted it told. I need the world 
to know about this woman I fell in love with. So she was a girl. She was 18. And that's where he was coming from. And just hopefully he said the circumstances of their finding each other and how they were able to survive that may prevent it happening again. Now, that's quite naive, of course, of him to think that because it never stopped, really. But that's the way he saw it. And to him, he couldn't understand. And we're talking about a man who was... He's part of a a religion and a culture that in some ways is quite isolationist. Hmm. Um, But that was never the case for him. And, And the fact that in that camp, he lived with and befriended and became part of families of Roma people a people he openly admitted he would in any other lifetime never have given the time of day. And as he said to me, he said, you know, I learned that we all bleed the same colour red when we're shot. Mm. And why on earth would we even want to think that one person is better than another, is superior, has a right to life more than another? And uh, for the rest of his life, he carried through that total non-judgmental attitude to anything and everything and you know he, he got that attitude through living through that horrendous horrendous time as i as i read i was confronted by visions of of Auschwitz and Birkenau that you evoke perhaps in a surprising way if i can if i can just elaborate um because we have many depictions of of ideas of what it may have looked like and what it may have have been like in film, um, in all sorts of graphic media, um, and as as I read the Tattooist of Auschwitz, I was struck by my memories and my thoughts of things that I had seen were always always very grey, they were very mm. bleak. Um, they were they were sort of horror stories made life, and in the Tattooist of Auschwitz, as we as we move along both through Lale's love for Gita, but also just through the, the passing of seasons, we forget that the entirety of, of ni- the, the concentration camps in 1940 to 1945 didn't exist in this per- per- perennial winter. No. We see spring, we see flowers. Did any of that surprise you as, as you were listening to Lale? Well, it did, because like you, I also only saw this bleak environment and, and most of the photos you see, and you know, the reality is that um, it's very hard to make a documentary about it. Uh, mm. um, and most of the films we've been looking at, there are very few films. While they talk about the Holocaust, very few of them actually have any time in Auschwitz-Birkenau. Mm. There's only one or two that go into there for about five or ten minutes. They're generally set outside the camp or a small part of it. Um, but for Lully, yes, it, it, it was seasonal. The summer was lovely. You got to sit in the sun when you could, and the flowers that he would see, and I was able to identify them. The national flower of Poland is uh, the red poppy with the black heart. Uh, and yes, they were swinging up. The forest outside the camp, which was deciduous come spring, came full of life. So, yeah, we have all the colours of the rainbow in that atrocious situation. And as I read, I, I thought to myself, I understand why it's important that depictions try to evoke the horror. But I also realized that in my, my thoughts about this, um, there, that something of the humanity of the people that were being depicted was also lost. In trying to evoke the horror, we lose the individuality of those people. Yes. 
And that's what I loved about the tattooist of Auschwitz, uh, the way that individually, individuality rises and, and we, we yeah. meet these people. That was uh, the paramount force behind my writing the story. And when I have had it said to me by, by an academic that I didn't have enough of the horror in the book, and I very quickly, politely pointed out to him that I have not written the story of the Holocaust. I have just written a Holocaust story. I will leave it to the historians and the academics to write the story of the Holocaust. Mine is one, the story of Lali and Gita. And that is why I never stepped outside of the camp. I didn't tell the reader what's going on in the rest of Europe. It's about these two people and what's going on around them and the people that they're, they're mixing with. Very important. I had to stay that path. Mm. Keep it simple, actually, is what I was trying to do. And I think by the sheer numbers of people who are buying and reading the book, I, I might have struck a chord in mm. keeping it simple. Yeah. Throughout, um, throughout my reading, you also had me thinking a lot about a phenomenon that we now, we now know of or we now call victim-blaming. Mm. Um, Lale continually worries throughout the book that he would be despised by other other country people, other Jews, as a collaborator. Um, yeah. And you also reflect, uh, I think, in the afterword that this was a factor in why he waited so long to tell his story. We we see this blaming play out also in the story of Silka and, and Jakob, two people yeah. who were also forced to do what they could to survive. Were you ever worried in telling this story that readers would view survival as a kind of betrayal or, or maybe ignore the blame that rightly exists on the shoulders of the regime and the individuals who forced these circumstances onto them? Look, Neil, I wasn't. And I wasn't because while Lally you know, was concerned that he may at some point, if the story became too public while Gita was alive, that he was concerned about that and that's why he waited till she died because he would never wanted her to be put into a situation of having to defend him. And once she was dead, he said, I know I wasn't a collaborator. He was really clear on that. Mm. And um, he was now prepared to come out and say, this is my story. Anyone wants to have a go at me, bring it on. Because I know deep down that I was not and cannot and should not be seen as a collaborator. But he needed to protect Gita. We thought he was protecting her from ever having to face any accusation on his behalf. Misguided. I've been to many, many countries all around the world. I've spoken at the London synagogue, um, other synagogues around the world, and not one person has even hinted to me mm. that he should be in any way accused. So that was a misguided belief on his part, but he had it. I think in the in the phenomenon that we know of as victim blaming, we can see the the roots of his concern though, because we do have a tendency to mm. to make people who suffer the agents of their own suffering. And we really, we really, particularly when it's men, particularly when it's white men, we we mitigate the role of blame on the person committing the act. So I, I, yeah. I completely understand Lali's mindset, even though I think it, it, is, it is, you know, wrong to blame victims. Utterly. Well, look what mm. happened to Silke. Mm. Uh, you've read the book. You know what happened to her. Um, and, and FYI, she's my next story, which I'm currently um, writing and oh. researching. And, uh, yeah, for a 16-year-old girl who, you know, through no fault of her own, the commandant chose to make his concubine to then spend, well, she spent 10 of the 15 years she was sentenced to a Siberian gulag. 
sleeping with the enemy. I was I was stunned by that, but then also not surprised that a woman would somehow be made to blame for Mm -hmm. something sexual violence beyond her control. Yeah. Um. Sorry. (laughs) Unreal. Yeah, I know. Sorry, and it is it is quite overwhelming even talking about it and trying to come to terms with the way that we these these power dynamics are still existing in our society. I'm, may, maybe we can just move on to a, a slightly different topic for a moment because our conversation is is happening ahead of your appearance. So you're going to be in a on a panel at the Sydney Jewish Writers Festival. That's right. You'll be on this panel uh, discussing fictionalizing the Holocaust alongside Rita Nash, Lauren Chatter, and Kirsty Manning. Now, before you met Lale Sokolov, um, was historical fiction or exploring stories of the Holocaust something that you'd even considered? Was it on your radar? No, not in the slightest. Um, historical fiction was a, an aspect of, of reading that I really did seek out. Mm. I've always been drawn to memoirs and biographies and, uh, and yeah, historical accounts. Um, but in terms of the Holocaust, no. And that's what actually made me somebody that uh, Lali was prepared to talk to in the end was my sheer, not quite ignorance, but I had had a you know, small country town New Zealand education with regards to the events of World War II. If the New Zealand Army wasn't taking part in the battle there, then it didn't exist in mm. my education. And uh, not being Jewish, I never had that family background knowing anything other than the really basics. I, of course, I'd heard the word Auschwitz. I hadn't heard the word Birkenau. Mm. How crazy is that? Yeah. We, we lumped the, the two together, and that's fine. I'm quite happy to just refer to Auschwitz if that uh, invo- evokes the picture that I want the reader to get. But, and, um, yeah, no, not, not the Holocaust, and so, yes, here I am. And so as you, as you listened and sat with Lale and heard his story, what emerged for you, and what did you see as your role in bringing these stories together into the screenplay that you originally wrote and that ultimately became the novel? I knew I was sitting with living history. That was clear from day one. But you've got to remember that given his age, his memory, and his grief at the time, he couldn't tell me one coherent story Mm. uh, from beginning to end. It was all little snippets and vignettes. There was no linking. I was hearing about uh, an event happened in Slovakia one minute that would be suddenly tied in with being in Auschwitz. It was really difficult for him to tell a coherent story, and understandably, Mm. which is why I had to take the time to just piece it together bit by bit uh, through his telling and then, of course, with my research. But as I did my research, I was able to go back to him and say, well, look, can you tell me about this? Because I've just learned about it. And look, he could, his memory was actually fantastic. He just, timelines with him blurred a bit. Um, and so I was able to bring it together by looking at the timelines that factually we know. We can go and, and, and read when Hess was in Auschwitz, when Mengele turned up, when the Roma people were all taken out uh, on one night. So that's all there. And to be able to then get his story and then weave it together with those facts is, is what I've, I did. And I know he never got to read a copy of the novel, but he did get to read one or two drafts of the screenplay. Now, you've trained as a as a screenwriter, and one of the very important roles 
that you have had in recording and imagining this story to create the screenplay in the book is to bring words to the characters. And the the dialogue actually really stands out for me in The Tattooist of Auschwitz. What did you want from these dialogues? What did you hope to bring to readers trying to understand this horror? That's that's my um, not being a a writer, a novel, an author in some ways. And yes, I have been said, well, you know, in places it actually still reads a bit like a screenplay. Mm. Uh, And in some ways that's deliberate for me because that's where I was comfortable writing. But yes, screenplays, it's all about, you know, it's a dialogue, it's a show, not tell. It's getting those emotional arcs all, all in a row. And I think that helped me immensely when it came time to adapt that screenplay into the novel. What I needed to do was tell the story the way Lully wanted it told. Mm. Now, of course, my publisher said to me, well, you've got to write a memoir. You know, that's what you've got here is a memoir or a biography. So I went to memoir school for a day and went, nope, not going to work for me. To tell his story and some memoir was a biography I would not be able to put in scenes of Gita. I would not be able to include her in the book unless for those times she was actually with Lully. Mm. And how cruel would that be, to to be able to restrict her role? Uh, There were incidents like he couldn't remember the name of the people he played a soccer game with. Mm. If I'm writing a memoir, I'd have to call them Player One and Player Two. Mm. How much better to give them names? In that role in putting words into the mouths of characters, you give them personality. And, and obviously, Lale can reflect somewhat on their personality, but you are you are mm. very much fleshing that out. And that is going to be for the characters that we grow to love. And you've mentioned many times that Lale viewed this as a, as a love story. But it also means putting, um, you know, putting a, a, a nasty but, but, you know, strangely immature sense of humour into characters like, I'm going to remember this correctly, I hope, uh, Beretsky, who was the yes, the guard that, w- that was sort of assigned to Lale. And well, I wondered then, how much uh, did you see your role in, in balancing, I guess, aspects like their humanity with the evil that they represent and that they perpetrate? Yes, it's an interesting sort of notion uh, with regard to the SS that were in the camp. Mm. And, um, you know, it's that old adage of are they wrong and evil because they were on the losing side? Um, there's an aspect of that. Now, there were one or two, and I've got them in my book, instances where Lali did witness and was part of what you could describe as a humane act by the enemy. You know, not everybody is pure evil. Mm. and But, you know, I, I left a lot of them out of, because that wasn't the story I was telling. I think there's one I've left in, which is towards the end. And I don't mind giving the story away, by the way, guys. It has a happy ending for anyone who hasn't read it. And in historical memoir, you are obviously working within a, a, a known tale. Um, even if Lala's yep. story is, is unique, we know the war ended. We know that uh, the horror of the camps was liberated, but that six million people died. Exactly. Mm. Now, when the girls were taken out on their death march in January 1945 and Lully was trying to stop us, he didn't know what he was trying to do and he was struck by by the rifle of one of the SS and he was on the ground and he was telling me that and he wanted to just stay there, he said, in the snow. He said he just wanted to stay there and curl up and die. 
And it was an SS officer who came down and put his hand down and lifted him up. Now, just a tiny little act. Mm. But he got up and he went back into his box and was able to then you know, continue and go on and survive. Now, I could have not put that in. But I thought, it happened. Mm. Um, I will put it in. And I just hoped that not too many people would say there was no such good, there was no good Nazis, there was no good SS. Yeah, look, they weren't. No doubt about that. I'm not going to be an apologist for them under mm. any way. But every now and then, like that, that officer, he bent down and he lifted him up. Can we leave off with coming back to the original thoughts that we began with? Now, you're appearing on a panel about fictionalising the Holocaust, which I'll include links uh, at the end and on the website for people who want to actually come and see you live talking about this. But in The Tattooist of Auschwitz, you have have fictionalised aspects of a true story. Um, you've, You've created an experience for people who want to try and understand this. We're in a climate where conservative right-wing, even, uh, you know, sort of... We're getting, we're getting, you know, Nazis getting platforms in Australian public discourse. What role, what power does fictionalising, but also reading a story like The Tattoo of Auschwitz have to play for the average person? For you, what do you, what yeah. do you feel? Look, my publisher in London wrote to me yesterday, and uh, you, I... You, got to comprehend or understand here between the publishers in London and myself we are getting hundreds and thousands of letters from readers all around the world and they're by and large 99.9% part of their comments are you make me want to change the way I see my life and I live my life Mm. but this story is now saying to me if he can have hope in a death camp then maybe there's hope for us as well. Maybe we don't need to have all this greed and this sense of entitlement that that we we have. And we're hearing this, as I say, in the thousands. Mm. And and my publisher in London yesterday wrote, she said, I'm beginning to think that through literature and stories like this, maybe, just maybe, enough people reading it we can start to turn the tide in discourse and in conversations about humanity and the need to pull together. And she is now going to be searching for, and she's found another beautiful book. She, was, she subsequently sent me a copy of the manuscript this morning, again, but talking about a couple from Syria mm-hmm. who um, have found their way into a Greek um, refugee camp. This particular author spent time with and I can only hope that with enough people reading this and the fact that it's not the dry um, historical accounts. And this also was borne out to me when I was in Auschwitz in, in April with the March of the Living People. And I was speaking to three or four hundred young students from, from America. And they were sitting there wrapped. They're just totally taken by the story. And afterwards, their teachers came to me and they said, we spoke to our students afterwards who we thought were getting a bit uh, flat and a bit sort of morose about hearing what had gone on. They'd been to Auschwitz and Birkenau, so they're pretty taken. 
And they said to these students, what was it about what Heather was saying to you that made a difference because we were watching you react? And they said, you know what? I can't picture six million people. I can't picture a million and a half people dying in Auschwitz itself. But I can relate to two people. Hmm. Um, and I think that's where the, the story and any other stories like this can actually have that power by bringing it down to one or two people who you can relate to. Yeah. Sheer numbers overwhelm you. Mm. Overwhelm me. That's it for this great conversation with Heather Morris. Heather's novel, The Tattooist of Auschwitz, is out now through Echo Publishing. And Heather is appearing at the Sydney Jewish Writers' Festival on Sunday, August 26. You can get more details and purchase tickets at shalom.edu.au. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at 2SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. If you're enjoying Great Conversations from Final Draft, uh, can I ask you to hit subscribe? Uh, Whether you're in iTunes or whatever your podcatcher is, subscribing lets you discover more fantastic Australian writing delivered to your phone, to whatever device you're listening on every single week. It also helps people find, if you're liking us too, can you give us a rating? That also helps people discover these great Australian books that I'm presenting. And to keep up with the latest books, writing, and literary culture, you can also follow us on Twitter and Facebook, also on Instagram. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. My name is Andrew Popel. I am going to be back next week with more great conversations from Final Draft, so I'll see you then. Bye now.